have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum! Astral Radio Z is a horror, cult, exploitation film podcast by filmmakers, critics, musicians, journalists, and fans for the film obsessed. Here is your host, Derek Terry. Radio Zombies. Derek Carey is very excited to talk about Jeremy Salmier's new film Green Room, and wants everyone that listens to go see it. But urges all to not listen to this podcast until you see it. The boys will be spoiling the ever-loving shit out of all the stuffs in the film. You have been warned. Now we tune into a show already in progress. The new series of Mysteries Inc. is the shit. It's good. It's pretty great. Yeah. I gotta see it. It's yeah. weird because it uses a lot of like modern pop. Well, okay, I shouldn't say modern because there's an entire episode that's basically under the guise of Twin Peaks. It mm-hmm. even has the man from uh, another planet in it dancing around, speaking backwards, and all that shit. Yeah. Okay, he, so 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 it's so it's our middle age pop culture. Basically, yeah. No, they saying. kill uh, Dylan and Brenda get eaten by a crab monster from Nine Two and at the beginning of one of them. Oh. Well, they deserved it. <laughs> is this the one? Is this the one that does uh, has Harlan Ellison and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft in it as well? Yes, yes, it does. Yes, it yes. does. Holy crap! I got to see this. Is this on Netflix? Yeah. Yes, it is on Netflix. It's Mystery Incorporated. Scooby Doo Mystery Incorporated. That's gonna make an interesting addition to my queue. Dude, it's awesome. I well, I mostly have to watch it because my girls, my youngest, my uh, three-year-old. Want it's exclusively the only thing she wants to watch. So whenever we're chilling out and I need her to calm down, I'll I'll be like, "Do you want to watch Netflix? Yes, Scooby Doo. 
Scooby-Doo. So we have to put Scooby-Doo on and it's always that. And then I end up sitting there watching it with her and like, man, this is pretty damn good. It is. <laughs> Fucking A it is. Yeah. With us, it's that at breakfast and uh, Rocky Horror at, at bedtime. That's I, I bought the Blu-ray again just so I could get the digital because I had the 35th edition, but the 40th has the digital copy. Yeah. Do you throw toast at her too? Like, do you just (laughs) (laughs) just act it out before bed? Is this? (laughs) Because I don't want her to start calling me an asshole every time I talk. (laughs) Wait until she's save that for her teenage years. Yeah, twelve or thirteen. Oh man, she's a lot harder than Amanda is. My girlfriend Amanda, she had never seen Rocky Horror before, and I bought because at Walmart I was walking through and in their seven ninety nine Blu ray bin they had uh the i think it's what the 40th anniversary edition in there and i i picked it up and she's like i've never seen this i'm like holy shit we're watching this right now and when it was all done she's like i don't know what to say we don't really get it seeing it at home though you know do you not really like all the way i've never seen the here's the thing though i've never had the opportunity to see it with a live audience so I always say that I've half seen the movie like a hundred times. It's considered I've masturbating. Never, if but I've never voice. fully seen it, as I, as I say, because I I've, I've say I've half seen it a hundred times. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> a person that's seeing Rocky Horror in the theater for the first time is considered a virgin, a virgin and they I call know. it getting fucked to see Rocky Horror, so it's considered masturbation if you've only seen it at home. Mm-hmm. Andrew, well. did you see the movie Mr. Right? Yeah. What'd you think of that? Uh... <laughs> really? I oh, mean, I thought that thing was fucking awesome. What did you like about it? Like, why? What was I just, I mean, I watched it. Here's the thing. As I watched it, the same night I watched Green Room, which we're going to talk about in a bit here, I was at home and I'm like, okay, searching through like what's available on digital. And there's Mr. Wright. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. okay. Well, you know, I've had Explain the- to me what is Mr. Wright. It's I, Max I, Landis wrote it, man. And that, the, thing, the thing about it to me is it's like, I had just watched the one that he directed and he just, everybody he writes talks like him. You know what I mean? Like, sure. I don't, I don't, and I like him, but I'm like, that's just the mark of somebody who's, you know but what I, I mean? But I, but, but I, that's but like I, Josh Whedon. Josh Whedon's exactly the same way. I think, I just thought it was a really, I was surprised. I was like, I was started laughing almost right away. And then by like the time the movie was like 30, 40 minutes into it, I was like, I can't, this is like a, just a romantic comedy with, with like a hitman and stuff. And you know, like stuff Chris like that Point where, Blank. You know, yeah, very much. Oh, like I Ghost love that Point. fucking movie. It's very much like Ghost Point Blake in that he's very upfront with saying, "Oh yeah, I kill people," and she doesn't believe him, just like the Vinnie Driver character in Ghost Point Blake. And I'm watching them saying, "I can't believe how much I'm enjoying this movie." <laughs> See, I like, I like, I like Seven Psychopaths a little bit more. And Seven Psychopaths is great. I, I, Sam Rockwell kind of challenged, channeled that a bit. Uh, Max Landis goes hot and cold with me. You know, I liked this. I liked American Ultra. There's other things he's written that I haven't cared for. I like, I like the American Ultra, yeah. I still haven't seen that one either. I've been meaning to, but I haven't seen that one either. It's weird, I, dude. I, I like everything about American Ultra except, say, like the last five minutes. And then everything else I thought was awesome. Well, see, a lot of this stuff just plain doesn't play where I'm at, which, you know, I have to when I see small films and American Ultra wasn't necessarily a small film, but it wasn't something that stuck around very long where I'm at. And that is like the exact same thing that happened with what we're going to be talking about tonight. The Green Room is that it had a limp what was called a limited release, but then they, they pushed it out kind of what they did with The Witch. 
And when I saw that it was playing on one screen here, I got a hold of Amanda like immediately. I'm like, hey, the green room's playing. Do you want to go see it? And if she would have said no, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going anyway. <laughs> I'm going to see it. I hope you can join me. So we went. It was on a Wednesday night. It was this last Wednesday night, in fact. And we show up, and I know you guys follow me on Facebook, so you probably saw the picture. Literally, it was in the smallest theater on in the very ass end of this megaplex. Like they're they're like, here's your tickets. It's all the way at the back. Okay, all yeah, right. It was in the corrugated metal add-on that they have. Yeah, <laughs> you, you had to go. Th- you had to go through the bathroom. That's where the employees get to watch movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You had to go through the bathrooms in the janitor's closet and the remedial reading courses yeah. are back there for the dropout kids. Yeah. <laughs> you show up. Your feet are sticking to the floor. All that kind of stuff. And uh, we show up, and literally no one was there. And this was. The, the most perplexing thing to me was this. So we get in there and now all these Metroplexes have are like seated with these cushy recliner chairs. So we get in there, we sit in the, the optimum uh, placing within the theater, the lights dim and the movie starts. That is fucking unprecedented. That is weird. <laughs> You didn't even get those. No, there were no previews at all. None. It just fucking started. And I looked at her and I said, this is a good omen. This is a really good fucking omen. I mean, what did you guys have like a even, regular experience? Well, there was no one in mine either. And I, and I posted the picture of the, my theater too, because you posted uh, yours with Amanda and she's striking this like awesome, like a boss pose. And so I posted the empty theater of, of mine too, but I, but we had, I mean, where I, I should say, had trailers at least. So I was oh. sitting there, like in the like the little middle of the theater, dark theater. I had the trailers and everything. I had the private showing, not the first, not probably not going to be the last time it's going to have it either. But then I got to watch this ultra ultra frightening movie in the dark by yourself. Yeah, without anybody around or anything. Uh, it, yeah, it was just me and my friend Carissa, and it was like we had one preview, which was for Lobster. And from the preview, it looks great, but it looks like that's all you're going to get from the film. I agree that it's pretentious looking. But yeah, it was us. And there was a point halfway through the film where uh, like Ryan, the, you know, the clerk came in, you know, like the 16 year old kid. And we honestly thought this is it. This is where we get murdered. <laughs> like <laughs> this is this is exactly how lives end. Two people sitting alone in a theater on a Tuesday afternoon because it's the only showing. And this kid has set this up for like some weird criminal minds murder spree. Uh, I don't know if the film was legitimately scary or if it was scary just because we honestly were in fear of our lives. Like you, you I got mean, what was considered the 4D treatment, like in Kentucky Fried Movie, where where somebody comes in and you actually are, are part of this movie. Yeah, my my, I left my hand was like all duct taped up. I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. You tried you tried to get out of the theater and someone tried hacking your hand off. You don't have to. Yeah, you're not being kept here. But you can't leave. <laughs> but you can't leave. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Astro Radio Z, folks. As always, I'm your host, Derek Carey. And as you can hear, we are all flabbergasted that we actually were able to see a movie like The Green Room in a Megaplex or in a theater at all. And 
<laughs> what was expected came true. Nobody went to go see it. And it's a, a goddamn fucking shame because this was a fabulous film and I can't wait to talk about it with my gents tonight. I got Scotty D, I got Andrew Shearer, and correspondence group effort from the Fear of a Dork Planet podcast, Eric Carlson. The other Howdy. half, I've had, Annie, I've had Annie on my show before, but now I have the other half, Eric, on the show tonight. Thanks for showing up. Hey, uh, and I'm, I'm not planning to stay awake. That is my main goal all the way to the end. <laughs> well, then you will have beaten Annie. I, I, it's not a difficult task, but I plan on doing it. You know? <laughs> hooray, hooray, hooray. <laughs> That's my promise of excellence. Oh, good. So we all went and saw The Green Room, which if you're not aware of what this film is, it is the third film by Jeremy Solner. Or is that how you pronounce his last name? Or Sol Solnier? It's Solnier. Okay, Solnier. I, 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 you want to say it? Well, how do you say his name? Solnier. S A U L. You know, N I E R. You know, you know exactly. But it's pronounced Smith. By Jeremy Smith, his third film. Sade. Sade, yeah, Jeremy Sade. Sade. I've actually seen all of his other films, uh, to which I know this is going to be shocking to most people. I wasn't particularly a fan of either one of his previous films. Exactly. I, I hear <laughs> those gasps every single time I say something like that. And who was that that gasped for me? That may have been me. I, I gasped. If anyone else did it, it was a chorus thing. <laughs> yeah, well his his last film blue ruin i think it's pretty universally heralded as an, a, a great film i think most people i've talked to the the major consensus is is that it was a nail biter and uh and a really great film is that how you feel eric that's exactly how i feel um i love the idea that this is sort of an inept guy who is the opposite of batman where Batman spent 13 years prepping to punch anybody associated with the death of his parents, this guy didn't. And that was the part of it that I loved. was like, that probably would have been, you know, had my parents been murdered, I would have dropped out in just sort of, I, I don't know, I could empathize with the guy very deeply. Uh, and I was like, this is probably the more realistic way a vigilante is created. Mm -hmm. And so, and the second he gets that in over his head, it's just like, oh, this he should have planned this better. And then it's just watching everything fall apart in in a really beautiful way, I thought. I thought that it was well shot. I liked the conversations. I liked the lack. I liked the silence. Yes. I thought he, uh, Jeremy Saulnier works silence better than just about anybody else. What I did like about Blue Ruin was uh, the pacing of it, and I did like the frankness of the violence. I think uh, Jeremy Sade did an amazing job. <laughs> With um the, the with the pacing of his film, you said that you appreciated and you thought that it was a kind of a realistic portrayal of what somebody would go through if they were in that situation. There was something that like disconnected for me that didn't ring true to me with the character. And I think I've been meaning to go back and rewatch it and give it another chance. But there was something about that character and the situation that just didn't like make sense to me like for some reason there was something about this guy becoming so completely unhinged by 
his family accidentally i know this sounds weird accidentally being or be, or being killed in a family rivalry with a with a, another family which is what the film was correct like the family gets killed because of another like a family a feud that had been going on for many many years and uh his parents get killed and then he decides to after what like a 10 year um, gap go and take revenge that was sort of how i took it and one of the things that i like about both i didn't see murder party but what i like about both blue ruin and green room is there's not a lot of the story so far happening you know you're just sort of thrown in like, yes skipping ahead to green room real quick we don't know why uh emily gets a knife in her head and frankly i don't care that you know the point is is that here's where we meet them and that's where the tension builds so how this guy became unhinged, how he's been living out of his car, why he never sought to uh, exact revenge prior to this moment. I was like, I was okay enough with the film to say, here's where we're starting it. Mm -hmm. This is, this is the moment he's been waiting 13 or 14 years for. Sure. Um, so I don't feel like I needed it. I could see how other people would. I think that's why and I'm not, this is no, I'm casting no shade here, but it's why people demand prequels for things. Because it's like, well, I, I, I can't – I don't sit well with this lack of pre-information. Yeah, there's I, – I don't know if it was the lack of pre-information or is just it, it felt like the motivation that was there didn't connect with me for some reason. I'm usually of, those, of the like mind with you on this. I usually like just figuring that out myself as a movie goes along. But there was something about maybe just the vibe of it just didn't gel with me. I like the frankness of the violence, and I like the somber tone, and I like the pacing. Andrew, what did you think of Blue Ruin? I liked it, but I I basically saw it as Bud Court playing Rambo. <laughs> but, but, I, but I also, you know, I, I liked how it was like kind of Coen Brothers like, and so I would, I don't know, I was just behind him on the whole thing because he comes from shot on video horror, yeah, just like you know a lot of us, but except a lot of them just want to keep doing more and more horror or crowdfund a big horror, and instead he crowdfunded a, you know, a little bit more of an art house thriller, and I was like, yeah. holy crap, that's that's cool, but is he gonna keep? You know that pension that that Sean Video Horror has for gore and all that, and he he totally did. You know? That was for sure. Yeah, especially after you know Murder Party, which was ex essentially kind of like a horror comedy. It was a lot like his what he his and his friends did, and a lot of you know a lot of us and our friends did. So you know, neat to see him kind of make good on that. I mean, it played the art house here in Athens, and I was like, holy crap! You know, it was unexpectedly um grown up you know that's what yeah. you that's what you kind of hope uh, some filmmakers will do instead of just copying you know their old stuff or you know resting on the laurels or whatever so i was behind it you know thought it was that was pretty cool i expected him to go on to do some hollywood crime movie or something like that but instead <laughs> green room you know punk rock almost horror war movie whatever you'd call it yeah, that was well, really. I think that's what his goal was: was to squeeze Green Room in before he got too big, or before he was getting, you know, script reads for bigger and better things. 
um, because he knew that once he got to a certain level, he'd never be able to make this. I kind of feel that he's forging his own path right now. And I kind of like the direction that he's going, even though I wasn't a huge fan of blue ruin. I, I, I liked the direct, it was very unexpected. Like Andrew said, I, from murder party to blue ruin is a tremendous jump in maturity. Scott, what do you feel of blue ruin? I feel it's going to be great when I finally watch it. Oh, you still haven't? I'm shocked. I'm really surprised you haven't seen that everybody one. Was, everybody was recommending this movie, and it's like one of the and from like last year or so. And it's like a movie that I just did not get to. And of course, as soon as Green Room was done, I wanted to run home and say, "Is it still on Netflix?" No, crap. Oh, is it not on? It's Netflix? not on there anymore. No, uh, no. I, I um, uh, this is my Green Room. I didn't, and I, I'll be honest with you. Even though I was aware of Murder Party, I didn't know that he did it until like about. 10 minutes ago so uh this is really my first jeremy sonye film yeah well, what what a hell of a film to jump into because yeah, cold trial by fire went in cold man oh well that's a perfect way to do cold this I, I kept hearing all all the people that i respect their opinions on movies kept telling me derek this is phenomenal andrew told me it my bud uh john Pata told me it they were all just like man you're gonna love this film Go check it out. I had to. Once I saw it was here, I had to go and, like I said, walked into the theater. The lights dimmed and the movie started. And my anxiety level went through the roof for an hour and 30 minutes until that movie was done. And I I couldn't talk. I could not talk. I, I felt, like, exhausted <laughs> by the end of this film. Sound check in 15. You're on in 20. Stop! In the room. Go. Cops are on the way. We haven't done anything. Doesn't matter. We sit and we wait. And we die. Not if you sit and you wait. Where are the police? They've come and gone. Got a little complicated. Gentlemen, it won't end well. Maybe she's not dead. There's not a lot of blood. No, oh, man. Holy shit. Things have gone south. No doubt. We gotta go. Shoot who is left. Blood and bleed. They're coming. Here we go. Careful now. Zero. This will be over soon, gentlemen. Uh, what Green Room is, folks, if you aren't aware of this film, a down-on-the-luck punk rock band ends up in desperation because they're out of money. They show up to a gig that just doesn't materialize, and then they end up having to play at some, like, bar and grill for a bunch of <laughs> parents that don't want to hear their brand of punk rock. Uh, so they, they get this desperation gig at a skinhead bar, accidentally stumble upon a murder, and then are held uh, hostage and have to fight for their lives for the rest of the movie. That's essentially what Green Room is. And 
if you had seen Blue Ruin, if you take the grittiness and the frankness of the violence and the somber tone of that film and ratcheted it up to a thousand, <laughs> Green Room is one of the most I I literally have never felt that kind of anxiety watching a movie in a long, 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 long time. Now, now, Andrew, we've talked in the past on Astro Radio Z about both of us have been involved with punk rock bands. And I know, Eric, you've talked a ton on your podcast about your love and devotion to punk rock. Um, this is a major component to Green Room. How do you feel, uh, Andrew, how the punk uh, music and mentality was handled within Green Room? Well, it's obvious that either he has played in hardcore bands or he knows people that played in hardcore bands and then can talk to them about, you know, what it's like and, you know, hear stories about it and all of that stuff. But it, it just had a, it reeked of kind of a firsthand thing because the thing is, you know, normally when you show up at a venue, they are not that organized. Even some of the bigger ones that you play are not that well organized. So I knew something was up almost immediately because people knew exactly where to tell them to go. And it was all like rigidly timed. And I'm like, there's no way something else is happening here, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I, I liked that it. it wasn't too on the nose. It was just kind of, you know, kind of casual and, and very matter of fact about the way everything was going. And so, uh, I don't know, the siphoning gas, uh, uh, the, you know, just the kind of all of that stuff. But what he, what he really, what he really nailed is, is um, the moment where they play Nazi punks fuck off in order to razz the skinheads and the fact that they don't jump on the stage and murder them instantly yeah. is another clue that there was more going on there. Because if you do, just no way you do that. It was a place called 513 in Atlanta. Yeah, it was the scariest venue that I have ever played. It was a lot of skinheads there. And, um, you know, they would stand on the side of the stage, like on the stage and just watch you. They would just watch you. They would be right within, you know, a few feet of you. And you're thinking like, man, what are they waiting? You know what I mean? But they really are so militant like that. It's no wonder then this guy writes them as a, you know, like, like a, like a, like a, basically like a military organization, you know, or a terrorist organization, because they really are, they pride themselves and not always the Nazi ones necessarily, even just the straight edge ones. They're just very utilitarian, very, very conformist for a movement that is supposedly, you know, rebellion. Eric, what's your experience with, with that kind of stuff in punk rock? So I, I never played in any bands. I was the kid who went to every show and, you know, did it for the energy and did it basically to 
jump around and be an asshole for a night and, and have a great time and get up and do it the next day. And so for me, like the Providence scene, we weren't really overwhelmed with too many skinheads. And most of the kids we had were sharps, which was like the anti-racist groups. Um, but I recognized a lot of the same kind of motifs. And I, it's funny when, uh, that moment with the Nazi punks fuck off, I thought like, wow, that is one of the most ballsy things fictionally or ever anything else I've ever seen in a movie or in, or heard of in real life. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, that the Nazis kind of did take it on the chin and we're like, Oh, all in good fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the only point in the movie where I was like, I'm calling bullshit on this yeah. right now. I was just like, I'm like, shit's going to start. As soon as they start playing Nazi punks, fuck off. I look at a man. I'm like, oh, this ain't going to end no, well. I called bullshit on load in because that's just not the way load in goes. You just <laughs> never. No, it doesn't matter. But when you're sitting on a secret drug warehouse, I think you become very. Uh, yeah. You tell your kids in the audience, hey, let's not bring the cops in for any reason. Uh, so let them play their anti-Nazi songs and we'll all be happy. Right. Yeah. yeah, that was that was it definitely because generally speaking, Nazis skinheads especially are not known for their sense of humor. So I mean, <laughs> no, no, there's not a lot of good. Uh, oh, you guys! You know? <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah. Oh, so so so. Let's Scott. all go fuck off. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> You got us, guys. <laughs> I'm gonna fuck off now. <laughs> so, beside the that one instance uh, of a little bit of unbelievability, this movie is grounded completely in gritty reality. Scott, how do you feel this film started out, and how did you feel um, how you know the quote-unquote reality of the situation played out? Oh, I thought it was very good. Uh, speak going back to about the band things. I was, I don't have the firsthand knowledge uh, like that Andrew has, and um, I went to as many shows as I could when I was younger, and uh, it was it was all, it wasn't just hardcore. It was all sorts of things, but I knew that the most the most intense shows that I went to were the hardcore shows, um, and. Uh, it was always great also if you actually had that one moment when it wasn't an indie band, when it was a band that actually had been around for like 20 years. And then you get like the old school hardcore punk fans and the new, and the new punk people who had, were just like, hey, man, you heard this band Green Day? This Dookie album's great. And they just, you just watched like stepped back and like watched the clash and so, you know? <laughs> like, Oh my god! Oh my god! I saw so many people get fucked up at a Circle Jerks concert. Holy crap! <laughs> but anyway, but uh, but uh, yeah, the I mean, it just felt. But it really, I mean, it it like Andrew said, it felt like somebody with firsthand knowledge. When I would read all about the bands, when I would uh, you know go to as many shows as I could, and you'd hear these hard stories about yeah, we've been on the road. Yeah, this this gig fell through. This we had to cut our tour short. We don't have money for gas. We don't know where we're going to be squatting. You know, uh, it reminds you know, like of all those like old stories you used to hear about, like how you know Black Flag, Minutemen, and all those uh, classic like SST bands and everything like started out, and uh, how they were they were playing basements, you know, and they were sleeping in basements, you know, if they were lucky, you know, right. It, all that felt so genuine, and then, of course, the actual, which I think was what you were actually headed towards, when the tension heats up, 
it actually did feel genuine. It didn't feel like it, it didn't feel like anybody was suddenly a hero, you know, automatically or anything like that. It felt like there are this group of really, really scared people where they, you know, they're used to rebellion, they're used to fighting, they're used to struggling, but now they actually have a life and death struggle right. going on. And so they're trying to reason their way through it. They still have enough rebellion in them to try to reason their way out and find a way out of it. But in a sense, they are just terrified to the very marrow of their bones. I think you've you've touched on something that is very yeah. intrinsic to this film is that there's this group of people that have that live in a manufactured rebellious state at mm -hmm. all times. And I think a lot of people, and I don't, and this isn't a slight to people, this is just an observation from being in punk bands and being around a scene and, and being involved in situations at gigs with my own bands where I think people have taken themselves a little too seriously and don't really see the reality that they're living in in this manufactured uh, state where they, they're, they feel like they're individuals yet they're conforming to uh, the same thing that everyone else is conforming to and they take themselves a little too damn seriously. I, there's something about punkers like old school punk. Eh, there's something about those people that I've always noticed that they they're just like they can never lighten the fuck up. They're always on fucking guard. And it's just like, dude. Mm, so so the 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 tension that was there in this film felt real to situations that I've been in and and in the the point of the matter that they decided they were go, going to go out on stage in order to fuck with these people and sing Nazi punks fuck off showed that they really didn't even though they were in a hostile situation where they they, they walked into a skinhead bar they really didn't think anything was going to happen to them because they were on stage and they live in this uh, this completely manufactured rebellious state at all times. It's in 2006. Are they really going to get killed at a gig? Is something going to really happen to them? I don't think so. And I think that comes to the crux of why once shit really goes down, they all freak out. Out. Well, I mean, like when these bands, you know, they, I mean, it's not like they don't know what a struggle is like. I mean, but by, you know, their gypsy like uh, existence, like going from gig to gig and seeing if anything is going to happen, they do struggle and they do everything. But like you said, they probably have lots of ha have had hairy situations, but for them, a hairy situation is probably getting like stomped by some drunks or stomped by the cops at like a show. You know, uh, it, it's not skinhead. It's not, oh, my God, that poor girl has a knife in her head. And now we've seen it. You know, it, it's it's not that it's not that it's that idea that once you are faced with more actual mortality, whether it's uh, the, the whether it's the death of uh, someone you care about or whether it's the your own imminent demise, you know, everything shifts. Everything turns, and that's what kind of what I got from it, you know. And they were trying to reason their way as best they could, but it never felt disingenuous. It, I mean, they weren't naive enough to say, "Okay, well, we'll trust these nice skinheads to just let us go," but it also wasn't 
a matter of, you know, suddenly I'm going to pretend like I'm Rambo or something, you know? I well, mean, even though the one character kind of looked like he was ready to get crazy at any point, there was yeah, that one he, band but, member. But he's used to, but, he, but what's he used to, who's he used to fighting? He's used to fight, maybe fighting like one guy, a one-on-one arm might be armed, might not, you know, he's, he attacks the one guy who like screwed over on the, screwed up on the gig earlier. You know, it's, it's not the same thing when you're actually facing like this, you know, militant, really people who really believe in this shit enough to say, you know what, we don't even care if you kill some of us because not, not what, whatever happens, you guys aren't getting out of here alive, you know? Right, right. So at this point, so the the, the band shows up at this at this gig. They're uh, they play this gig. They they they're trying to unload. And what we're talking about here is. One of them runs in, forgets his phone, runs into the green room where if you're not familiar with what a green room is in terms of a gig, um, it's the the waiting space for bands when they're before they uh, they go on stage. It's a room in the backstage where they sit and hang out. Well, they go. One of the members goes back to get his phone and sees a dead body and a bunch of people standing around it. And then they basically by the the rest of the people that that run this uh, bar, uh, they are thrown into this room and held hostage. So essentially, from this point on in the film. It's it it becomes kind of like this night of the living dead where <laughs> they're stuck in one room for the vast majority of the the rest of this film. But I at no point did I ever feel like it got boring Mm-mm. in this room. Um, Eric, how did you feel once it became a a one room film for for a good percentage of the middle section of this film? How do you feel that was handled? I think that's probably for me the most tense part of the entire film. I think that there's that moment, there's a couple moments in the film where I was like, you know, this is a point where you could just theoretically say, let us out. We kind of believe you. You know, how far are they really going to push it? Uh, because the violence that they're used to, as you said before, is all implied. It's never been real violence, it's always been a black eye, maybe, you know, a couple scrapes. They're not dealing with life or death stuff. And so I kind of, you could feel the pull between the band to stay in that room where it was the most dangerous and the most safe. Uh, and at the same time, allow themselves to be escorted out before Darcy, uh, the Patrick Stewart character arrives and really starts a very different set of uh, game being played. Andrew, what did you, what did you think of uh, the, this green room that they were held up in with the one member of uh, the bar staff that was in there holding them at gunpoint. No, that was good. You know, I mean, there's the bottle horror is kind of a, kind of a subgenre. I, I tend to like movies like that. Uh, you know, like I, well, I, I would consider up until point 10 Cloverfield lane was, was pretty bottle, you know, um, but neither living dead, probably the, you know, the best example evil dead, maybe uh, dog soldiers did it. You know, I know this is sounds funny, to me, but I thought Patrick Stewart was hilarious when he came in. Because of that way he played it, he's all calm. He's like, "Oh, you know, everything will be okay." It's just not the way you. It's not the voice you thought you'd hear, and not the tone of voice. Because the first thing he asks, like, "Can we just 
stop yelling for a minute. You're like, yeah, okay. like he's trying to be the sympathetic voice, like trying yeah. to play to their sympathies. But I started to laugh and no one was laughing. I laughed a few times in the movie and nobody laughed. I, t- I saw a streak of dark humor. Oh, yeah. It, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, very, very kind of effective. And that's the way you do, man. You just you kind of close everything off. And and uh, in, in that in that regard, the audience you know, has to experience it right along in real time, which the movie pretty much kind of plays out in like a, I don't know, it seems like under 24 hour period, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause the, what the rest of the film is basically these people trying to um, jockey for position to try and get out of this situation. One side, which is the, which is the Patrick Stewart side with the, the skinheads are just trying to flush them out of the room so that they, they can kill them and then dispose of them so that there's no witnesses to what had happened. And they're, uh, the kids are just trying to get out so they can try and run off and survive. And every time they, they try to open the door, <laughs> something is lunging out at them. So, very horror movie, like, in that very, regard. It's like Aliens. Yeah. It really is like aliens on a bunch of levels. From from that point on, once that scene happens to the end of the movie, there was never in my mind one second wasted of this film. There was they were constantly trying to propel the plot forward. They were trying to keep you on the edge. There was never a time where I predicted what was going to happen. Yeah, well, horribly <laughs> maiming the star of the movie early on puts the audience on their ass for the whole time. It was a very smart move. Yeah. It it felt like that horror movie trope where nobody was safe in this film. And I loved it. I found that entirely refreshing. Eric was, did you feel that at any point in this film, you kind of had a beat on what was going to go down? No, not at all. And every time I kind of felt like I was in a safe place, like I was like, Oh, here's how this is going to play out everything went sideways. I think that, you know, when Patrick Stewart is like, you know, things have gone sideways here, people. He's actually telling us, the audience, like, don't don't count on anything from here on out. Um, and they did a couple things, and I don't know if I'm getting too far ahead, but it's one of the only films where they kill an animal and I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a weird place to be for me in a film because I'm usually the guy who's like, oh, they killed the dog. Let them all die now. Uh, and so when that happens and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, oh my God, I'm a monster. Uh, this, is what it's <laughs> this is why we can't have good things. Eric and I, uh, people, Derek, Derek, I, I'm sure is kind of chuckling because he knows that I feel the same way. I said, does the dog make it through this movie? Well, no, I'm like, no, I'm not watching it. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> I'm that type of person. But you're not cheering for that dog at any point. No, no, but you know. There's a website, doesthedogdie.com. I, I, I know, but I, I, I You can know. type it in to see if I, the dog no, dies. It's, it's no, that's a website. That's a true website. I've gone there. But it's, uh, but I mean, there is actually a part, but it's like very, very late in the movie. So I don't know if I want to spoil it or anything like that. But it really, um, and Andrew touched on something very similar when he wrote about Green Room, I should say. But this is not quite the same thing, is that there is a moment where you see that the guard because the dogs in this movie are of course as you can extrapolate are vicious attack killer dogs uh that have been probably like you know abused and everything to 
be conditioned to attack people and tear apart people. And yet there's a moment of towards the end of tenderness where it shows the affection that it has for this owner that was probably horribly abusive. So in the way the dogs are just mindless drones in this like Nazi skinhead game, just like everybody else. Right. In terms of drone thinking, there's the moment where the two twin skinheads are stabbing each other for $600 cash. Right. That's the stuff in that film that's the real horror. That's the visceral stuff. Is you get this momentary scene where one kid's just stabbing what I assume is his brother. They look exactly alike. And they're dressed, you know, I mean, obviously they're all kind of dressed the same because it's uniform. But then, uh, what's his name? Gabe takes the $600 back and says, I'll hold it for you. And so I felt like the whole horror of this was just, how cheap humanity actually was for these skins. Mm-hmm. Just life in general, that these people were were so desperate for anything that a couple hundred dollars, they would allow themselves to be stabbed in the gut for a few measly hundred dollars. At what, how, much would it, how much would you charge? <laughs> Fuck, I wouldn't do that. It'd have to be a whole hell of a lot of goddamn money. <laughs> <laughs> made me think of that. Uh, remember that Tupac movie, uh, Gridlocked with Tim uh, Tim Roth, where they're um, you know they're trying to get uh, get get to the hospital to avoid the the, the crimes or whatever. So at one point they're trying to go to the emergency room, and he gets his pocket knife. He's just like, just stab me, and he like pokes him, and he's like, ow. You know, it's so funny that scene. Not like Green Room, although there were things in Green Room that are hilarious. Fixing shit with duct tape is something that bands often do and punks often oh. do. And I, I was laughing my ass off. That is one of the most memorable tape. scenes of that film. So, so what Andrew's referring to, and if you haven't noticed already, listeners, we are spoiling the ever-loving shit out of this movie. So if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. Uh, we just uh, You probably should know by now you shouldn't be listening to this podcast because <laughs> I don't ever hold back on it. But is at, at one point, uh, there, Patrick Stewart uh, convinces the lead guitarist of the band to give them the gun that they they stole from the one skinhead that's in the room with them. So they decide, okay, well, we're going to keep the bullets, and I'm going to give you the gun. They open <laughs> the door, and he starts to give the, the put the gun out there, and they start hacking at his fucking hand, oh, and great. nearly he pulls it back, and his his arm is fucking mangled yeah. it's a mangled fucking mess and they start wrapping it with duct tape in order to hold it together <laughs> this is this scene alone not only like was a throwback to showing that mr Shade was is he comes from a, a horror background because it is yeah. excessively gory but there was something so tangibly real about the way that that looked that oh, he yeah. was he was going for oh, yeah. a completely different kind of gore, and I think Blue Ruin started that really because Murder Party was was a total Evil Dead style trauma style kind of horror comedy where the gore was purposely over the top and ridiculous, but Blue Ruin was much more reality based and very frank about how people got shot and how they how the the gore was depicted, and this film even more so I thought tried to be as reality-based as possible. There's one scene where, like I said, I'm spoiling the fuck out of this movie, but this is an example where Patrick Stewart gets shot in the head 
and barely any blood comes out until he hits the ground and a little spurt starts coming out of his his head. I'm like, the gore was handled so well in this fucking movie. I absolutely, well, it's hard to love the nasty shit that's in this movie. Well, but why it not, dude? Hand, like, I handled so well. I laughed when uh, I was one part where he's already, he's been taped up for a while, and then he falls through some floor and he lands right on the arm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think I'm sick. I think that wasn't intentionally funny. A lot of it was darkly funny, but mostly Stewart's, you know, his probably performance. The, probably, the, probably the sickest uh, thing which I could see. I mean, it made me, it made me just yell like f bombs in the theater in the empty theater. So <laughs> was uh, was the uh, when they are actually the guys like trying to choke the person out. Was like oh. Yeah, Amber. Just, is, is he out? And Imogene Poots there just slices him up from the belly. Oh. And that, I think, you could argue was supposed to be a little funny. You're like, yep, he's out. You know? yeah, but, that's my favorite character. But still, I was like, holy Jesus. I mean, I, I, was, uh, I, I couldn't believe that uh, this what place, that this film went into some of the places it did. The, what got me about the gore was that the gore – and we've we we've seen you know we're horror fans from way back so we know that there's so many different ways to show gore you know uh, humorously over the top you know uh, if you're trying to just be shocking and stuff I don't think it was doing it to like out of like really exploitively I think it was trying to be as realistic as possible in showing how vicious this was, but it was just a really vicious situation. So when the arm was hacked, I mean, they didn't dwell on it except to create tension, and it worked. When he, the guy was sliced, they didn't dwell on it except to create tension. You know, when the dogs attacked, they only to create tension, and it was bloody, It and there was, like, you know, senseless violence, like, that would erupt out of nowhere. And it was always effective how he handled the gore. It was always effective how he handled the violence. It was never kind of like an Alexander Aja thing where he was like, ooh, look what we can do now with uh, our effects budget. It was, does this really ratchet up the tension in this movie? And if it did, he went there and he did it very well. Well, he didn't glorify it. That's the thing about it is they didn't hang on it. It was very matter of fact. Now, Eric, uh, through listening to your podcast, I kind of took for, I kind of take from it that you're not the biggest fan of horror. Would that be accurate to say? Oh, yeah. I'm not even going to pretend to like be like, no, I like a little horror. I am not a horror fan at all. So what did you think of the, the violence that was within this film? You know, I thought it was natural. I loved how most of it was off camera or especially like with the dog attacks, how, and I don't know if it was just my screen, but it was unbelievably dark. So I felt like there was a respect paid to the aftermath of violence. Yeah. And so we kind of had to sit through, you had to sit through the horror of the violence, but the aftermath, the bleeding out, the gurgling was kind of left off screen. Um, and, and that was, really unsettling to me, but I don't have a problem with it. My problem with horror is that a lot of times, and it was said before, it revels in its own gratuity, and I don't yeah. enjoy that. Um, the character of Amber, or Imogene Poots' character, I absolutely fell in love with. I knew a girl like her, not the violence way, but like in high school. Um, her, My car got egged one time, and her solution was to get me a gun, uh, which she actually handed to me. And she was a skin girl and stuff like that. And so I saw her on screen. I was kind of like, oh, the fact that she goes from 
I can't believe my friend has a knife in her head to gut everybody, let God sort them out, was not an unreal transition for me. That was an interesting part of how quickly she switched and how, you know, where, uh, what is it, Pat, Anton Yelchin's character is like, okay, I got to visualize this as a game now in order to get through it. She just goes into force of nature mode and just lays everything flat in front of her. She had a very complex and interesting character because it wasn't until probably like the halfway to three quarters point where I finally got a beat on what she was after and what she was going for. Because for a while there, it, it, she's almost played as, is she going to turn on them? Right. Um, yeah, because definitely. you don't know what, what her allegiance is to these people, even though they killed her friend. She was part of this organization and she obviously was familiar with all of these people. But then, yeah, at, at the like the three quarters point or the halfway point, she just wants to destroy everything. And I think, you know, I think everybody knows that one person that seems like kind of a meek person, but once once they say one thing, you're like, oh no, that person's fucking crazy. <laughs> you I don't want to cross this person whatsoever, and it's usually the smallest female that you know. <laughs> yeah, the toughest uh, people I've known. Uh, the thing I got about this character, because uh, at one point. Uh, the Anton Yeltsin character even asks, you know, how can you buy into this crap? Basically, it comes from, you know, long story short, it comes from a long th series of abuse. She's a survivor. And so I've yeah. known in my life a number of survivors, and they usually were these small, frail uh, women that you would not expect much of. But if you ever – but they had long since given up any notion – of taking any crap from anybody ever again. And if you ever cross that line, she could lay out somebody that was 300 pounds because she would know exactly the weakest parts to hit because she was a survivor. She had had, they, she had, had to survive for so long. That's the kind of person I felt like this person was, which was like those people that I've known in my life, you know, is that she went with where she knew she could survive where, and this is a place where, she knew that people would have her back and she knew that she and she learned how to fight and she learned how to survive uh i i thought that was a fascinating character so much more interesting than just have her be another one of them right you know? or somebody mm -hmm. who is one of them and has a change of heart or something it was so much more interesting and so much more realistic and relevant to what i've seen in my admittedly rather sheltered life uh than to go in in, in a place where say maybe a less inspired movie would have yeah well in the movie this movie for the most part is a sausage party but the two female characters in this film are actually really strong characters and they're they're both in their own ways kind of badass. Alia uh, Shawcat, which everyone will know is maybe from Arrested Development. She, I liked her character oh. as well. She's been in a lot of stuff lately. She was also Andrew. She was also in Pee Wee's Big Holiday. Yeah, that's right. God, she was part of that girl gang. Holy shit! We better not get on to Pee Wee, dude. Not not, <laughs> not right now. I'm having a hard enough time not telling a bunch of fucked up punk rock stories. Don't even start on Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> I'll tell you all some of those stories after we after we cut off of Mr. <laughs> God, that girl gang of Pee Wee. Son of a piss. Make a spin-off movie, Pee Wee. Come on, be cool.
Yeah, yeah. Make, <laughs> no, you know what? Make the Pee Wee uh, Herman version of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill with that, those characters. Jesus, man, that would be so cool. And you know, imagine tourist satan. I don't beat monkeys. I just train them. <laughs> I don't beat clocks. Just people. <laughs> Okay, before we go down the rabbit hole, folks, let's focus power. Let's, let's come on back to the green room. So both of these these characters I thought were fabulous. Andrew, what did you think of the female characters in this film? They're great, man. Um, you know, of course, I, I love her and I like that they had a, a female in the band because, you know, that, that just uh, something you don't see enough. I mentioned that when we did our interview about uh, we talked about punk rock a lot, I think. Um, but man, yeah, that Amber character, she's my favorite. I like that unpredictable psycho that's, you know, kind of could go either way, like we said, but, uh, mostly just like, you know, it's just, just that it always was surprising me where she'd do something really violent. You're just like, damn, that's great. You know, yeah. I like, I like that he didn't let a guy do that. That's, uh, you know, it's highly unusual and therefore just he throws you off even more. Just uh, part of the charm of green room is that they, they give that to her, you know? Yeah, I think that's part of the charm in general of the film is that it wants to subvert your expectations at all times. Now, let's we've we've talked about the situation, we talked about the violence. Let's talk about the fucking great music that's in this movie. Eric, I know you've been kind of going on and you've actually put together uh, kind of a theoretical soundtrack to this film. Do you feel they captured the spirit in in tone of of what these people's uh, soundtracks, like their internal soundtracks, would be uh, for this punk rock uh, situation? I'll say flat out, the most impressive use of the soundtrack was when they put on the Fear album. Just and you get for the a first second. note, and then <laughs> it lifts off at the end. And I thought that's punk. That's all. That's the entire soundtrack right there. They could play people humming. I don't give a shit for the rest of the film. That was the intensity, I think, and that was the reality of it because it was that fast. It was that visceral. You know, listening to an album was that important, and and listening for speed and listening for aggression and tone was everything. And and so I, I kind of love the fact that they didn't gloat in making a Repo Man soundtrack or it wasn't SLC punk where they shaped a movie around the songs. Right. The songs were meant to just be sort of background noise. Like if you're invested this far, you know punk rock, we're okay. That that hit, that needle drop where you hear the beginning of that and it, it cuts, it was just like, whoa, you don't see stuff like that in films very much. And, and, I, and I agree that the, the way that the, the sound was used within the film where there was a constant soundtrack playing in the background of this bar of all this super intense music. I mean, at one point, there's uh, Slayer's War Ensemble playing in the background. So it was just like, even though this, this, there was this constant fear of dread, there was this soundtrack playing in the background. Like at one point I look at Amanda and I started singing Slayer to lyrics to her because, because I'm like, fuck, this movie is so great. This movie gets it. it. There's, there's a lot more metal in there than punk too. Cause there's like a, Oh God, there's like an obituary song in there. Yep. Uh, Napalm death. I think was in there too. I'm not even like super into that stuff. A uh, poison idea. What the fuck else? There's a bat brain song in it. Yes. Yeah, it was, oh, it was wonderful. This is just just wonderful. <laughs> music in this movie, what got me about the music, and yeah, the music's all great and everything like that, uh, is that it's so organic to the movie. 
It's organic not only to the lives of the protagonist, it's organic to the antagonist, it's uh, organic to the whole situation, to the whole venue, to the whole uh, everything that they're in, the entire atmosphere about it. It it makes sense that it would just be there. It makes sense. I mean, it it, it, it makes as much sense to have this music as it would to have, you know, forest sounds if, it, if, if in like a Friday the 13th movie, you know, right. it, it was just, it was just, it just felt so natural that it's there that it just kind of like you didn't even I didn't even think of it after a while. Yeah, I th- I think sound in general was just another element at his disposal. I mean, even to the point that one of the ways they got out of a hairy situation was to use feedback. Yes. Toward the dogs that were attacking them. Because once they finally got out of the green room, it was basically just an obstacle course of death. Like at at what direction was something going to lunge out at them and kill them? And yes, not one person was safe. The people you thought were going to survive don't survive. They get off very matter of frankly and very quickly to where you're just like you're on the edge of your seat for the rest of the flick. And I want to go into some of the shocks of this film. I There was one point where everyone's kind of finally out into the middle of the venue and they're starting to hold their own. They're starting to get off some of these people that are after them that are coming in little by little to flush them out. And uh, there's this one character that led them to the venue that you learn subsequently was was uh, dating the person who got uh, knifed in the head that started this entire kerfuffle. And he goes in and is about to say, I, I know where they, they, they hide their gun. And he grabs under and gets a fucking shotgun blasted to the fucking face. And at that point, I was just like, I literally jumped out of my seat. I literally was like, man, I should be on medication while I'm watching this film. I'm going to have a fucking heart attack. It's, there's, there's no doubt about it. Eric, what scene got you in this flick? I think it was the scene when they were in the, um, the basement where all the heroin was. And they had the one Nazi kid trapped between uh, – well, Amber kept dropping basically corpses on him to get him to waste his ammo. And uh, the Anton Yelchin character was waiting to stab him with the machete. And, and for me, it wasn't – it was the anticipation of violence, and there was enough pause in there where, again, I became really empathetic, and I was like, could I stab somebody in the back if they were trying to kill me with a machete? Like, could I actually hack somebody to death? And as I was trying to contemplate this within myself, of course, everything gets resolved real quick, and I'm like, I think this is where I would have bit it in the film. I think this would have been my final moment, and that for me was the most sort of shocking and most fear-inducing sequence. There was a lot of those. There was also the the weird thing about that scene in particular is, I think there's elements of that scene that were really played for laughs in order oh, to yeah, alleviate definitely. some of that tension, but it still was so tense and horrific at the same time because you knew at any point nothing, everything was up for grabs. So it was just like that scene was a, was a superb scene. I, I totally get where you're coming from, Andrew. What was the scene that got you in this flick? Uh, I think it was when Amber chops that guy, uh, you know, with the, the cuts cuts open his stomach or whatever, just because you're already in a violent moment and then it becomes even more violent. So it was almost just like a, you know, like a, a true shock, you know, like somebody must have been like, 
you're already it's upsetting to see this guy who well you you don't know if he's killing him or not he kind of doesn't know uh and uh he's just kind of trying to do you know choke the guy like sleeper him or whatever and she's just like hey man let me let me i got i got you hold on (laughs) she just but it's but it's um the camera follows the knife or whatever it is as it goes up and so it kind of avoids shows you just enough to get how awful that would be to see it happen but it doesn't linger on it because it goes right back up to the guy's face as he dies so um it isn't done for the sake of shock although it is a you know it is but it isn't like they don't that was a very smart very mature way to do something like that because they could have just held that one you know could have had a static but instead Mm -hmm. it's a pan upward so it's sort of saving you and just showing you enough i don't know gore just we've said it earlier in the show um oftentimes is just done um you know just 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 uh indiscriminately and it has no punch uh, as violent as the movie is every time it still manages to have the punch and that's that's you know it's solid filmmaking yeah this film is all fucking punch uh scotty what was the scene that got you in this flick uh well let's just say it's uh it's probably that double whammy of when the band members finally start dropping because you kind of, because you don't know if anybody's going to make it out out alive. I, I had no idea uh, throughout the movie, and um, it's the double whammy of the one guy gets sicked on by the dog, and it's like you don't even have time to relax. You're seeing that horrible image of this guy just getting like his throat torn out by the dog, and you just see the one guy who's okay. I, I, I've managed to escape. I managed to get outside, and there's just they're waiting there for him, and it's just very not even they're not even pouncing on him just very matter-of-factly going to work on him like they were like chopping wood yeah like stabbing him to death completely yeah i mean just and and, you know it was it there was like no time to relax between the one attack and the second attack it just was it was really a double whammy it was that and then maybe 30 seconds later the other at least it's what it felt like to me as I mean, it, it was when you just went, "Oh crap!" <laughs> Things are like, I mean, it's kind of like that thing where you, when when they stumble on the murder, and you just realize shit's gotten real, and then it just gets more and more and more real as things go on. It just gets more extreme, but it never gets extreme to the point where you don't buy it, mm-hmm. you know. So, and it was that double whammy that really let me know all bets are off. It, it gets extreme, like you said, but it never gets Serbian film type extreme. No, you I know what I mean. I actually don't even. Yeah, and I'm like one of the few people out there, I think, of people who admit to be horror fans who didn't even like Serbian film because I felt that while it started out good, when it had that halfway point of showing you the great shocking thing of what they were going to be doing with the films, I couldn't buy anything that happened after that in the movie because I said, like, now they're just doing it because it's shocking, because it's the most nihilistic thing they can think of. And it's just them showing off and jerking us off here. Uh, I never got that feeling from Green Room at all. Never. I agree with you completely. So everybody eventually, of course, somebody makes it out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and without you know dissecting every little bit of this film we get to the the climax where imogene and anton they make it out and, and dispatch everybody you kind of expect something to resolve itself by the end of the film 
Um, I didn't think this was going to have a downer ending the way Blue Ruin did. I kind of figured they were going to have to alleviate some of this <laughs> at some mm-hmm. point. There was a running gag through the whole film where they were trying to, when they were trying to relieve tension within the band with each other to, you know, kind of ground each other, would would sit and talk about their island albums like what was what would be the album you would take to a desert island with you if you could only listen to it for the rest of their lives so at the end of the film uh anton who had been very kind of skittish about admitting what it was or he acted like he didn't know like it was this huge decision like his entire life like hinged on what this pick would be he finally after making it out alive and in sitting there uh, after people were trying to kill him all night long uh he's become this murderer half of his arm is kind of hanging off and all this stuff he looks at imogene after they just killed everyone at this at this ranch he goes yeah i I finally figured out what my (laughs) what my desert island album is you want to hear it and she goes Tell it to someone who fucking cares. <laughs> end of the film. I thought that was such a brilliant fucking way to end this movie. It was just like there was there was not one bit of this movie I didn't fucking love. Now, was this ending satisfying to everybody? Yeah. Yeah, that was great because, I mean, it's a MacGuffin anyway. Who gives a shit, really? Oh, it's, absolutely, it's, yeah. It's kind of like what we're all thinking. But out of any character in that movie – that's going to be the one who really doesn't care. <laughs> okay, we're through this now. I don't need to pretend like I actually care about your pep talk stories <laughs> like she does at one point. And uh, <laughs> she's like, no, we're, we're through it. I'm exhausted. I don't care. <laughs> and it's perfect. And it cuts to black. You know, that's that's about as perfectly as you as you could end it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Just as abruptly as it started, it ends. And it ends on a laugh, which I thought was was a perfect way to relieve the tension walking out of there. So uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Let's go down the line. Let's give our thumbs up, thumbs down, and uh, give our final thoughts on The Green Room. Andrew? Uh, big thumbs up, man. I'm a, I'm a fan of the way this guy's making his movies because um, – you know, rather than follow the thriller template of, you know, moving quickly or having the pace go kind of quickly uh, or even being like a procedural, he's almost just like he's giving you every moment. And instead of telling giant stories or complex stories, um, he is centering on some individuals. And that just gives them a, a, they're, they're thrilling in the way that thrillers aren't usually. And um, it's kind of the way that a lot of modern horror, some of the best, uh, is doing it too. And a lot of people don't really know how to take that because they're like used to a certain pace, you know, and they don't feel slow or anything, but they just, they, uh, they, they concentrate on some of the, the little things that maybe when another movie might cut away or move on, he stays. And I think that's just a, it's a really refreshing, really smart way of making movies. And my hope is that. Um, now that he's done these indies uh, that when he does start taking on the bigger projects and stuff that if he doesn't manage to do that or find, you know, material that'll let him do that, he'll come back to it every now and then and tell stories like this. Cause I really, uh, I like the way he does it. Yeah. I like the way he does it. And I think one thing we didn't talk about that is so integral to this film is that, Every character within this film, even the periphery 
one-line characters feel real. None of them feel stock. They all feel firmly real and fleshed out. And within a film like this, which is a breakneck kind of a bottle horror, like you labeled it earlier, um, type film, it's refreshing because most of the times in these kind of films, you get a lot of stereotypes and you don't get characters that feel like real people. And uh, I think that's one of the big, huge strengths of what he's doing right now is that he's creating films with people that you you can identify with and that you recognize in your own real life. And that's what's making the horror even more visceral is that, that these characters are relatable. So, uh, Eric, thumbs up, thumbs down. And what are your final thoughts on Green Room? I own 15 Blu-rays. I've already pre-ordered this one. Uh, this will be the 16th movie I actually own. Um, that is my biggest thumbs up that I could give it. The actual concept of wanting to to, to have it tangible in my hand. Um, I cannot wait for this film to hit DVD, uh, Blu-ray, and because I want there to be like director's commentary. I felt exactly the same thing. I felt the characters were real. There were no stock characters. Um, these are people who are fleshed out. I, I know some of them. I want to see more of it. I want to see it again and, and kind of process it differently. But this was one of the most perfect films I think I've ever seen. Yeah, it. I I walked out of that theater just thinking, holy shit, I just watched something really amazing. <laughs> Which yeah. isn't something that, that happens very often. I mean, it's happened twice for me this year. It's happened twice, and that's unprecedented walking out of a Megaplex. I, I, this movie and The Witch for me were virtually perfect movies. Well, I thought I you were going to say Zootopia, dude. That was what happened for me. Oh, I haven't seen Zootopia. Oh, I'm yet. not kidding either. <laughs> it's neck and neck for my favorite of the year so far. Wow. Astro Radio Z listeners. Oh, interesting, interesting, interesting. Scotty D. Yeah, it was all right. Um, no, seriously. <laughs> no, of course. I mean, you come on. You've heard us talk about this for like an hour and a half now. It's it's a great movie. It's really good. Uh, I was listening, you know, and I didn't know if I was going to make it because it was playing for one week in one theater, like one little cinema, and I had to get a special transportation there because I don't drive. So I, I mean, I had to bump somebody for a ride. I was like, hey, you want to come along? No. Okay. Well, then just pick me up afterwards. <laughs> Kill Joy. You know, but. Uh, <laughs> okay, Scott, did your mom pick you up and drop you off at the no, theater and then no. come pick you up? No. Uh, but the. Uh, but the. Um, had to suck gasoline from a car to get there. <laughs> no, no, no. But uh, I. Um, but I. I um, so I. I I want to see the movies. You know, sometimes the hype, it doesn't pay off. Sometimes the hype doesn't pay off. Uh, Midnight Special was a film earlier this year where everybody said, oh, you got to see it. It's one of the most incredible films. And yeah, it was it was pretty good. It's not the greatest. Um, but this movie, I would just like J D Derek was saying, I was watching the movie and I'm like, OK, yeah, this is a that was a pretty tense movie. And everything, and it ended on the good laugh. So I, I laughed at that, and the credits are going up. And about halfway through the credits, I start to get up, and I realize I am shaking. I'm like, and I kept shaking for like a good half hour. I'm like, holy shit! You know, I mean, I knew I was safe and everything like that, of course. But I mean, I, it was so tense that it took me a while to come down. I think Derek was mentioning this before, and I would totally agree with it. That once I did come down, I was just. 
I was so tired <laughs> afterwards. I was like, I was shaking for a half hour, and then I came. Then I was absolutely exhausted because it really, this movie, it really feels like it puts you through it, you know. And that's what you want in a movie like this. I didn't. I was asking people too, you know, from like because I heard the hype. Like, okay, am I going to need a? Am I going to need like to you know go on like Zoloft after this movie? And I think people th- were wondering if I was asking if it was tense. I wasn't really. I was asking whether it was going to be one of these – what I really hate in movies, and I touched on it earlier, was is cheap nihilism. Yeah. You know, something that just is dark for the sake of being dark, and it's out, outside of the realm of reality. Like Hobo with the Shotgun. No, I actually like Hobo with the Shotgun. I'm talking more like a Serbian film or something like that. Or on the flip side, if you want to go the flip side toward, towards the trashy side of it, I would say the Final Destination films, which I know people love. I hate them. I, um, I personally think, uh, when I think of cheap nihilism, I think of a lot of the underground horror right yeah, now yeah. goes for cheap nihilism because it's 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 easy to be dark and torturous and not really have much of a story behind it just for for grittiness and darkness and gratuitousness for the sake of it exactly and i was afraid that that was where green room was headed when i was going in there and it doesn't it is tense it does not pull any punches it does not let you off easy it is a really intense film experience but it is also an incredibly rewarding one and a completely realistic one. So, yeah, I mean, high marks for me. I thought it was a great movie. I don't think this was a nihilistic film. I think right from the start, no. it had a huge sense of hope. And, like, you were, you found yourself really hopeful. And every time they came up with a new plan, you were like, please, dear God, I don't care that it's 45 minutes into this movie. Let them get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Uh, and I was and saying I that was I, didn't, I, I wasn't sure – wanting them I, to succeed. I wasn't sure if it would just because I've seen so many movies lately go <laughs> the exact opposite direction. Like, I mean, I was half expecting like to see that see Anton Yelkin and Imogene Poots like by the side of the road, and all of a sudden, and all of a sudden they get like hit by a bus or something, yeah. <laughs> and then it cuts to black or something because I've seen yeah. that kind of mentality in so many movies, and uh, the fact that it didn't go there, but also it it did. It's not that it didn't go there because it was treating you with kid gloves that meant a lot to me as well uh it's a really good movie it's a yeah. really great movie i i think that, that you guys just hit something that's super important about this is, is that this was written with a goal in mind and it wasn't it wasn't cheap thrills it was a, such a solidly written and put together piece and there was even though it was it was tense it used the humor that was within it in very smart ways to where it didn't pull you out of the film and i think by the end of it that that ending is why it works so well is because you have literally fucking been through the ringer and it gives you just a moment of levity not too much, just that perfect amount, just like that needle drop at the beginning of the movie with that fear record. Mm-hmm. There's, I, I also am going to give this thumbs up in the highest recommendation that I possibly can. I walked away from this film feeling I had seen something special. And that's not hyperbole. That is, that is me being as genuine as I possibly can. There's very few times that I've ever been to a theater 
and and felt the physical reaction that this film gave me. Amanda wanted to sit as soon as we got to the car. Amanda couldn't stop talking. She was just like so anxious to talk to me about this movie. And I was shell shocked. I could not talk. I'm like, I'm like, Amanda, I'm, I'm exhausted. I've had a long day. Let's just, <laughs> let's just go, let's just go home. And, and I, I don't know. She's like, well, what did you think? I'm like, I think, I think I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> and it was more because it just like, it took a lot out of me. This, I, but I loved every single second of it because as I've always said on this show, I like movies that make me feel. And I like energy. I like movies that have energy. This movie seethes energy. It's just like in every pore of it. So if you're a fan of, of thrillers, and if you're especially if you're a horror fan, I think through and through this is a horror film. There's absolutely, I mean, it is that bottle horror where you're locked in a room and people have to try and escape. It, it is Night of the Living Dead. It's Night of the Living Dead, but with punk rock in skin. Nazi head. of the Living Dead? Nazi of the Living Dead. <laughs> Only no fucking zombies, thank, thank Christ, uh, or whatever deity you, you do or do not worship. Um, so <laughs> highest recommendation, as soon as you get the chance, because unfortunately, of course, the film's not in theaters anymore. It's gone uh, because they don't give good movies for screens. They give Marvel movies four screens in each <laughs> Megaplex. So you probably already missed it, but I'm sure it'll be out on Netflix and it'll be out on Blu-ray soon enough. It's coming so, out on, it's coming out on Blu-ray uh in uh, July. Awesome. That is such good news. Fuck, I'm gonna buy it first day. So <laughs> So I mean that's really soon too. I mean that's really soon. It's I, really, I, really I, soon. I checked it on uh, Amazon while we were talking and I think it said something like July twelfth or something like that. So twenty uh, fourth, awesome. I think, yeah. Oh, there you go. See, he's, oh. the, and, he's the, and he's the guy who pre ordered it. So yes. <laughs> he's, he's on top of this shit. So please, Astro Radio Zombies, go pick this movie up. Check it out. You're all gonna love this fucking movie. If you if you weren't one of the two people in your megaplex going to see this, um, please go check this out. So of course, here's the section of the show where we shamelessly show the fuck out of ourselves for the betterment of our listeners so they can find us all on the interwebs. Eric, why don't you tell the people where they can find you on the internet and show your, your various podcasts, please. Sure. Um, well, I guess I'll just say I did a, um, unofficial soundtrack for green room and it's available, uh, on iTunes at fear of a dork planet, which I co-host with the incredibly sleepy Annie. I'm, I'm zoning out the second this turns off, by the way. I'm, I'm done. I'm doing this from my bed. Uh, and then so I, I do another show called The Novel Sound. Which is awesome, by the way. Everybody, that's, that's go, che everybody go check that stuff out, for sure. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you coming on this one. Oh, I appreciate you having me. Thanks. Uh, and Mr. Andrew Shearer, show the fuck out of yourself. <laughs> there it went. <laughs> this is the poopy section the brown section of astro radio Z. son of a bitch man uh, well um what do i got uh, uh i got some movies on amazon on demand that you can rent 
um, Pajama Nightmare, Mondo Gonzo, Fake Blood, The Underground Cinema, Cinema with an S, and the new one, Late Night Cable. And if you're into physical media, www.gonzorific.com. You can buy DVDs of other stuff, including Dr. Humpenstein's Erotic Castle and some other erotic named things that Derek really likes. Um, couches, people. Uh, couches. Couches. Yeah. All right. So um, let's see. <laughs> uh, well, if you want just free things, um, YouTube has uh, a Gonzorific channel and you can watch a lot of short films and some old stuff and, you know, a lot of boobs and well, what have you. <laughs> you know, Satan, <laughs> spiders, vomit. All the things that are necessary in life, right? Yeah, punk rock. Awesome, Scotty D. Uh, I'm looking to. I have to update it again, but you can catch me at moviocrity.com. Uh, also, uh, that's where I've got like all my written reviews, the podcasts that I'm on, stuff like that. Uh, you can also catch my web series, Moviocrity, at vimeo.com/channels/moviocrity. Well. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you didn't like this show or you don't like good movies, go tell somebody who fucking cares. Yeah. You can find Astro Radio Z on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, YouTube, and anywhere that podcasts are found. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and email us questions, concerns, or just general chatter at astroradiozpodcast at gmail.com. Coming from me, Derek Carey, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. The